Hello, welcome to the movies that made me. I am your host, Luke Sorber, and this time the theme is love. Ever since William Heisey directed The Kiss for Edison Pictures in 1896, there have been movies about love. Different types of love, including love of an animal in Kes by Ken Loach, love of a place in Time in the City by Terence Davis, which is about his beloved Liverpool, love of food in Marco Ferreri's La Grande Abufata. Uh, but I'm going to concentrate on films about romantic love. Uh, but even there, there are so many great examples across the spectrum of love. Love Across the Classes in Romuald et Juliette, directed by uh, Colleen Serrault. Uh, there is Love Across Race in Rainer Werner Fassbinder's Fear Eats the Soul, Across Generations in Hal Ashby's Unique Harold and Maud, in Defiance of Heterosexual Norms in Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain and Celine Schiama's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, my guests today uh, have much in common uh, but one of the things I can say is that I love their company and I love their work. And they are writer, director and Los Angeles doyen of improvisation, Dan O'Connor. And I cannot remember the last time I was able to use the word doyen, but you are one, Dan. And filmmaker and currently BBC television drama script editor, Martha Julia. Thank you for joining me. It's evening. A Sunday evening in the UK, it's the afternoon uh, in Texas, but the magic of this technology has enabled us to come together. I found it difficult to narrow my choices down to two movies. That's what I asked my guests to do. Uh, two movies that fall in this category. I'm going to ask you before you introduce your movies and uh, maybe a little bit about what you're up to. Which movies did you consider but that didn't quite um, make the grade. So I've mentioned some in my um, introduction. I would have been very happy uh, to put in my in my two favourite movies about love, but they aren't there. Dan, can I start with you? A movie that you considered, but but, but you're not actually uh, putting on the table today. Uh, well, you you mentioned it before we got on the pod, which is Big Night, the movie with Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub and Minnie Driver and. Ian Holm. I mean, it's it's got a fantastic cast and it's about love and it's about familial love and it's about love of food in a way that is pretty amazing. So that that would have been in my top five with regard to this category. Martha, a movie that you considered but didn't squeak through. I first interpreted the theme of love as the sweeping melodrama it took that's where it took me first of all so i was thinking of todd haynes's carol which was just an absolute wonderful film and intensely romantic and then that then i started wondering if actually far from heaven was my preferred film as the final piece and then i started thinking about douglas sirk's films because i was like well actually they're an extension of these and these were the ones that came first so i started going to imitation of life and then i actually just had to stop because once you hit that first domino, there's actually no stopping. And I realized that I actually do really love romantic films. Um, although sometimes I don't always think that as a genre that I'm drawn to, but loads of my favorite films fit under this quite broad category. 
Well, it's interesting the use of genre because I think some of the films that we have chosen would be placed by um, sort of movie list makers into different genres, even though they contain uh, love. Because, of course, the rom-com is not the only um, sort of vehicle to put love on the screen. Um, let's um, crack on. Dan, can I start with you? Uh, you have two. In no particular order, which one would you like to pitch to us as, as a movie that contains love? Tell us a little bit about the movie. And then if you can, if you would, why it resonates with you as an individual. Well, I, the first one I'm, I want to talk about, um, and by the way, uh, I, I was the Woman on Fire and Carol both. Are, I, that's the great thing about this conversation is mm -hmm. the more other people mention film, the more excited <laughs> you get to talk about film. Because mm -hmm. um, I, I love both of those films so much. Um, uh, but It's a Wonderful Life is the is the is one of the films I wanted to talk about today. And the reason why I'm drawn to it is because even though I've been watching it probably over 50 years, <laughs> um, I still am amazed by it. I, I mean, not only do I, I weep in, in the places where you should cry, but, but I, I'm just moved by uh, the story. I'm moved by the, the honesty of it. And the performances are great. You know, Frank Capra's, kind of weird little rep company of, of folks. And the fact that as every year that I've watched it, I've learned a little bit more about it. And I think probably about, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, I learned that it was Stewart's first movie after the war. And one of the reasons why he is so raw um, in it is because he's, it's his first thing after going through the war. And I found out only today in, in getting ready to talk to you and Martha that it was Capra's first movie after the war. So both of them were, you know, frayed nerves and, and really uncertain and, and that shows. And the little bit of trivia is the, um, there were a couple of things that were maybe done for the first time in this film, but the, the scene in the bar where he's having the breakdown and praying to God, Capra liked very much, but he was shooting a master at that point. And so he tried to get Stuart to give that performance again, and Stuart couldn't quite get there. So for the, I don't, maybe for the first time, he pushed in on the frame, which is why it's grainier than the stuff before and after it. Um, now with 4K, you could totally push in and it would be no problem. Uh, you wouldn't lose anything. But that one take was the one he wanted. And so he kept it. Um, and the other thing is they won an award because they created fake snow for the first time that didn't uh, interfere with the, with the sound. Uh, because I think before it was, I think before it was like cornflakes or something like that. I mean, it's a massive set. It was three real city blocks long. But as far as our theme today, the love of, uh, his personal desire, I guess, to want to travel and things like that is this pull of wanting to get out of there, but also understanding that he had a responsibility for his family and the love of his family. That's one thing. Also, throughout it, you you really see the familial love, like between him and his mom. It's and that woman played Stuart's mom five times in five different movies, <laughs> um, and she's just terrific. Um, and that's you know. 
her performance is something that I was watching this time around, watching it this year. There, there were a few things where, you know, zoomed in, but but the the love between him and his brother, the love between him and his uncle, his you know, horribly inefficient and quasi dangerous uncle, all of that stuff, and the the love between him and and the Donna Reed's character is just so palpable. It's so genuine. Um, there's also a bit of improv in it that I, I wanted to point out before I forget, which I didn't know, uh, which was in the scene where Uncle Billy is drunk and George sends him home. He points him in one direction and then he walks the other direction or something like that. He walks out of frame and I think Stuart lights a cigarette or something like that, but he's there for a second. Then you hear this loud crash off screen and then you hear the uh, Uncle Billy go, I'm all right. I'm all right. And I always thought that was written. I thought that was a bit. And it was improvised because a stagehand had a big tray of something off screen and dropped it. And um, Thomas Mitchell uh, improvised the line. Uh, That's and- very funny, Dan, because they, they've mastered silent snow, but they can't <laughs> stop a stagehand dropping a tray full of props causing a massive <laughs> clatter but they, they've solved that by just by including it and it is in the spirit of, of the movie which is what I think you're you're implying that kind yeah. of positivity that rather than get annoyed Christian Bale style with a noisy <laughs> you know lighting uh, crew member it's how we embrace it yeah. may, I, may I ask before I bring Martha in the familial love that you've 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 detailed that, that that Jimmy Stewart's character George has, it's it's wider. It's his love of the whole community, isn't it? Yeah. And the community that pays him back with love. And he doesn't know the love is. He doesn't believe the love is there, which is why he wants to take his life because he's let everyone down. And they have to tell him, love is unconditional. We love you when you're in trouble in a way that's a test of our love and for me that's i mean it always brings um tears to my eyes but that that happens very easily in in the cinema maybe it's because it's dark uh, <laughs> so, so martha uh how do, dan and myself are of a generation where we've seen this many times uh what about you does it does it does it as a millennial uh, uh that's not the only reason you're here you're not speaking on behalf of the millennial cohort <laughs> Does it speak to you, though? Does it speak to you, this... Um, it's this... a wonderful life, or generally those themes. It's a wonderful life, yeah. Yeah, no, I do I do remember it quite well, but I haven't actually seen it in a very long time. It wasn't one of my Christmas movies that we put on so regularly, so I couldn't say about um, how much it makes me feel as the kind of, like, routine thing that I would see every year. But um, I do think that it's quite sweeping. I do actually, I really like old films as well. So I do think that I do get quite whisked away by um, some of their themes, which are tend to be particularly post-war about these small communities banding together and um, overcoming some sort of external issue that's actually an internal <laughs> obstacle. Um, so I do, yeah, I do really enjoy that. But I think he does marry that together so well. And we remember those rep companies, those ensemblers. If you think uh, you can't take it with you, those marvellous mm-hmm. performances. Um, and you do get this feeling. And I would say you get it in an improv company as well, that, that you're a kind of family. You, you, you're, you're not, you don't quite know what you're going to do, but you're going <laughs> to look, you're going to have each other's backs and it's going to work out and you trust in each other. 
And you see that in the characters uh, that he creates in these kind of uh, affectionate um, networks, which I, is part of what Capra-esque means, I think. It, it's um, I, not sentimental, but I think it's, it, it's emotional. It's, uh, it's affectionate. It's individual. Um, I, I think in terms of the fact that it's a story about a, a, a person, it's a story, you know, that all of his stuff and you think about Mr. Deeds goes to town yeah. and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It's about the the individual and how can they overcome the machine or how can they overcome um, uh, bureaucracy and graft and what what have you. Um, uh, so there's there yeah there's a love of justice I, I, mm-hmm. without sounding too pretentious, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, a love oh, of what's right. I, I, absolutely, and I do feel those individuals are there for the rest of us. So when we as an audience are, uh, we want Mr. Smith, Mr. Deeds, George to be redeemed to succeed, kind of on our behalf, as much as we love them as the individual characters, and we love Gary Cooper and we love James Stewart, they are also. Advocates for our better natures, for the qualities that our best selves admire, like justice. There's something. There's something uh, um, other factoid that I, I think is important about that movie is like Dalton Trumbo, Dorothy Parker, and Clifford Odets uh, all wrote on it. Wow. And and there um, they. I think the FBI and maybe I don't know if this is before the House Un-American Committee or whatever, but I know the FBI uh, thought it might be communist because it makes fun of bankers. Um, And uh, I just love the fact that that sweet, honest movie, or it feels like it, uh, was considered possible communist propaganda. Uh, Yes. I, I, for me, it's, the most wholesome side of Americana. But I could, you know, the idea is un-American because within international cinema, I, mean, I feel this is, whatever this means, a very American film. Yeah. Uh, I think I think it has very American tropes about, about the small town, about the individual uh, that, 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 that reads to me as very much part of that American cultural tradition, which I love. Yeah, I love Hollywood, uh, love Hollywood movies, even though I'm an out, outside of it. Uh, let's go to Martha's first of your two. Okay. What, so, you, what are you going to treat us to? I know, I'm trying to think which one to do first. I might go chronologically and go for um, My Beautiful Laundrette, which is 1985, Stephen Frears. And um, I think it actually does. Well, when I was rewatching it, because I was rewatching it in um, preparation to talk about it here today, and I was trying to kind of identify what it was that I love so much about it and why it makes me feel so happy. I also noticed this when I was choosing my films that the romantic films that I, I was drawn to are all have happy endings, <laughs> um, which is ironic because I think that a great romance has to end in tragedy but it seems that I can't stop watching these uh ones that give me joy (laughs) and my beautiful laundrette is definitely probably at the top there um so it takes us to Thatcher's Britain and quite dire circumstances and it manages to sew together 
a group of individuals that are struggling because of their class, race, sexuality, um, gender, because you have the character of Omar's cousin, Tanya, who's also struggling against the sexism of her family. And it manages to sew together this group of outsiders just triumphing by banding together and being outsiders together. Mm -hmm. And I think they managed to, it's just a very compassionate film. And I think mm -hmm. that's what I love about it so much is that it doesn't judge anyone, even the fascists. Well, it does a bit, but <laughs> there, you know, there is uh, redemption for everyone. There's, um, you know, the uncle's mistress, which is traditionally, you know, a negative um, stereotype. And, um, you know, she talks about her lack of options and her class, but also the fact that she's very loving to the uncle and that has an effect to the whole family because he's happier as well. And he's also kind of trapped in this, like this system that they're all in as well. And everyone's kind of not in control of their circumstances, but doing their best. And I think that's why it makes me so happy. And seeing obviously, sorry, Omar and Johnny's relationship, which is the main love affair of the story. Um, and they're turning this laundrette around and also turning their lives around and mm. building this kind of utopia. Um, and coming over their differences and it's got a happy ending and I'm a sucker for that so <laughs> you have uh, Martha you have the British Pakistani family with their own code their own rules rules that some are more comfortable mm. within uh, that you've identified and you have unemployed white working class uh, uh, of whom Johnny is a member and at the start they are absolutely uh, antagonists um, violent antagonists there's that undercurrent well actually it's quite explicit yeah. the racism uh, with you know uh, that, that's present there but as you say it's a forgiving film it, it's put together by Hanif Qureshi and Stephen Frears so you mm. have someone of uh, a British Asian heritage and you also have a white uh, filmmaker who've come together to make this film and there is the 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 the, the baddie is redeemed as you say the uh the outsider who could be seen as the person that comes in and destroys the family is is cast in a positive mm. light it is remarkably as you say sympathetic in a decade of selfishness and materialism that's absent absent uh in that film do you remember the film dan i i, I, I i've never seen the film i've never seen oh. the film um i think i lived it uh but uh <laughs> no but the, I, I was thinking about living in the UK at that time and and my roommates getting drunk and singing that they were all going to die because they were going to get drafted to go fight uh, Argentina. Yeah, it, it, I, I, I'm a sucker for redemption and for happy endings. I, so Martha, I love the, the idea of being in love with movies that have happy endings. I, it's, hard, it's hard to watch you know, um, like Les Les en Dangereuse is something that I, I thought about, but it I could never watch that. I think I've watched it twice <laughs> in my whole life. I don't think I could watch it again. I know exactly what so you mean. Painful. Some of my favorite films, I think I've actually seen once. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not revisiting them. <laughs> it's, it's just too much. You've had that experience as opposed yeah. to the, the sugar or cocaine cane effect of, <laughs> of of a happy ending mm. you know there's there's suffering in it though there is suffering in yes. it I, I was i was revisiting it and the film ends with omar and johnny literally tending each other's wounds doesn't yeah. it after a big fight yeah so it's not an easy ride and 
that's also what I mean about it being compassionate because it it doesn't paint everyone in a good light. I don't mean that way at all. Um, it shows intense hardship and there is racial slurs. Johnny uses racial slurs, um, you know, even though he's the love interest and as we say, painted in a positive light, there's violence. Um, but there's also, it's also got comic moments and light relief. It is, I, th I would probably say you could classify it as, as a comedy as well. So, um, you know, you've got these like fascists that are hanging outside the laundrette. And then there's this really comic moment where Johnny gets them to help them put the laundrette light up, um, sign up. And it's this amazing moment. So these people, but then those are the people that at the end, um, there's a violent confrontation outside of the laundrette and they, they, yeah, they, they beat the bump. And at the end, they're inside kind of having refuge in the laundrette. Um, and it's like a kind of bittersweet ending because they have each other, they have the laundrette, they have a new society and a home, um, but the problems aren't over, which I think is um, really important to reflect in Thatcher's Britain because obviously they weren't. Absolutely. It's it does feel like it's a refuge, a sanctuary, but mm. there's still all the shit going on outside. Yeah. And um, But it, it, it's clever enough to get, to to uh, represent the working class white far right as themselves a symptom of a deeper problem yes. their dispossession their alienation and i think it's just so sophisticated and yet also you can just see it as this beautiful love story between mm. these two uh people from different communities who uh despite all the 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 the, the social religious architecture uh, uh, acting against them, find find each other. Dan, did you want to say something? Well, I was just wondering if 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 the two of you uh, agree with my massively generalized <laughs> statement that I'm going to make, which is I think that filmmaking used to be a response to the time rather than an echoing of the time, because I, I think there are a lot of great films that tried to respond to Thatcher's Thatcher's England to uh, the evils of the House Un-American um, Committee uh, to the to fascism during World War II or leading up to World War II, and it feels like now that there's mostly sort of we I think maybe in American culture we're leaning into fear, we're leaning into you know darkness, and uh, rather than a, a response of hope. Um, but I mean that's that's how I'm feeling today. I could change yeah. my mind tomorrow, but. I mean, it's a, it's a big question. It, it's so much easier to look back and understand the 80s than, than today. So what you say about now. today I, will become clear in a few years' time, won't it, when we look back. Mm. But I remember going to the cinema and seeing these little pearls of independent British filmmaking that was against the grain of society and feeling kind of uh, reinvigorated in those moments when I sat in the Ritzy Cinema in Brixton. What, and then, then I'm out and I'm back in the struggle, at struggle at work, struggle with my trade union and, and, and an ally to others uh, suffering mm. far, far greater than me. Uh, I think you're absolutely right in, in, in the role, and I'm sure other cultures, other cultural forms as well, that cinema does in responding to and helping us escape from and see differently than, you know, what the, what the, um, hegemony is at the time going no no we, we, there's a different way forward there's a different way of being yeah. it's in this film it's here for the few hours if it changes you a little bit when you leave the cinema great but if it doesn't you've still got this mm. 
it is kind of echoing the time, but also providing those moments of hope that you need during that time. So in that way, I would say it's definitely a response to the time. Uh, My Beautiful Laundrette specifically, but yeah, films like that. I can't wait to watch it now. I'm <laughs> very excited. Dan, back to you. I, I know what your next choice is. It's my favourite film. <laughs> So, but you get to talk about it. And but I get no to pressure. Uh, so I'd love your take on, on this movie. I love talking about it, reading about it. So, so uh, Luke Sorba's favorite film is Casablanca. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, I think, I think it's my favorite film as well. Um, um, it is so well written and so well directed. And I, I, I did a, a deep dive on Michael Curtiz um, in in getting ready for today and found out he directed all of the Errol Flynn movies that I love and that were my favorite movies as a kid. Um, I think I've seen Adventures of Robin Hood probably 30 or 40 times and and to turn me on also to the great composers of the time like Max Steiner who did a lot of the Warner Brothers uh, scoring just amazing but to talk about Casablanca, um, I mean, such uh, amazing love. I don't know if noble uh, love. I don't think it's noble love. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not articulate enough to to describe it. But the fact that he he makes that choice um, at the end uh, is so amazing and so loving when you think about it. Um, and um, one of the factoids that I uh, Michael Curtiz would, you know, spoke five languages, none of them well. I think that was a quote because uh, he was Hungarian. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but when uh, Ingrid Bergman asked him, you know, who do I really love? Do do I love Victor Laszlo or do I like uh, Richard Blaine? Uh, do I love Richard Blaine? And he basically gave her an answer that was both. So she she does a great job of of balancing that the affection for both those guys. And it's it's beautiful, and she's a terrific actor. They're all three of them. Everybody in the movie is terrific. Oh, oh everybody. The everybody. smaller parts shine one after the other. The cameos, everyone, the waiter, the singer, mm. uh, everyone. Uh, I'll just, and I will add at this point, uh, one interesting thing about the cast I found is how many of them were from European emigre backgrounds. They had fled fascism and Nazism that was spreading all over Europe. And so the movie is like Casablanca itself, a a refuge, but also in a way a prison where people have unwillingly had to flee to. And they've made this film, this extraordinary film, because of the the alchemy between all the creative, the Epsteins, the brothers who who wrote most of the script, the director, the cast, they align. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting very pretentious here, but when they do a lot, <laughs> we notice. <laughs> no, we notice. no, I, I, I love it. Uh, all but four of them were not born. Uh, only four people were Americans. Wow, wow, right. And, yeah. um, and Curtiz himself lost his parents and his sister in at Auschwitz. Um, the uh, Carl, the waiter, lost his family um, uh, in the camps. The girl that the the character. Yvonne, Yvonne and the bartender were actually a couple or a real mm-hmm. couple. Uh, yeah, but the the also the double entendre and Claude Rains in amazing, 
amazing awesome. job. Uh, but there are a number of times where they're getting away with sex jokes that they probably shouldn't be getting away with. <laughs> they're delivered beautifully. Like at one point, the young girl, the the Bulgarian, or I, I can't remember that, who's looking for the papers. And she yes. says, um, Bogart says, um, so you and your husband? She says, yes. He goes, well, oh, he's getting more broad-minded talking about Claude Rains. <laughs> Claude Rains. <laughs> and um, there's just, there's so many moments like that where the writing, and of course, when they, when, when everyone sings uh, Le Marseilles, uh, I can never oh. pronounce it correctly, but it it's so amazingly ins it's inspiring in a way that like you hope film can do and that it's, it's such mm -hmm. a great example uh, uh that moment is, is wonderful and i remember madeline lebeau plays yvonne uh she gets a close-up during the singing of the madeleine uh, uh, of, of the marseillaise yeah so she's quite a peripheral character she gets her moment everyone gets their moment yeah uh and um yes it, it's such a humanist uh piece isn't it dan and we go we marvel at the writing because this is a commercial hollywood movie and we forget that some of the finest and most literate artists gravitated towards hollywood from all over the world uh particularly from europe we should not be surprised at the wit and the wisdom contained within these movies that had to pass through uh, the producers, uh, you know, commercial field, but they managed to, in in so many cases, just elevate the genre uh, within those constraints. It's just fantastic. And let's talk about the sacrifice, uh, Martha. The we are men, and it is a man who <laughs> really. Yeah, so we are men. So it's so. I can't help imagining myself as Rick and having to make that decision and hoping I would be the noble one and I would sacrifice for the good of the world, my personal happiness. You might, uh, you might see, I don't know, uh, but you might see it through, the, through Ilsa's eyes. Mm. Uh, and I'm just wondering how that famous ending, when he hands over the tickets and he does his speech, uh, you mentioned the word noble. Of course it's noble, Dan, it's written in the script. Nice <laughs> being no, like you just said, you, you yourself, you were saying, you, you know, you're not good at being noble, but you're being like Rick, Rick Blaine, who said, <laughs> I'm no good at being noble, but I think you are, and he, he is. How does it feel to you, Marty? I absolutely love this film, and yes, it's one of those films where you're getting to the end, and it, it could not end any other way, and yet every time I find myself wanting it to, <laughs> but also knowing that I don't even want what I want because then Rick wouldn't be Rick if he didn't let her get on the plane. <laughs> so it's it's really hard. And also she, yeah, you're right. I do, I, I mean, it's hard. I do, I see it from both of their perspectives and I think it's perfect. But I think also what's interesting is that it's not just his sacrifice because although she loves them both, she's also making a sacrifice because we all know yes. that if it wasn't for the war, she wouldn't get on the plane. Absolutely. But she's making as much of a sacrifice because she knows that her function here is to is to leave and be by his side. And it's so painful and yet so perfect. I think actually I watched that the last time about 10 years ago and I cried so much at the end that I was like, I forgot how sad it was. <laughs> um, because it's so it's so romantic and sweeping and um and you just get really lost in it and and then you just kind of I 
I always get a bit like punched in the face by the end because I forget how emotionally moving it is. I would hope to write a film someday that makes every, uh, you know, everybody on the cast, whether they have one line or, you know, whether they're a star equal in some ways, because mm -hmm. like you were talking about the, her close up, but, you know, even the guy who's playing the casino manager for him is terrific. Everybody is terrific. And everybody has a line that lets you know who they are. Even Berger, the Norwegian underground guy, is fully realized. Everybody, mm -hmm. even if they only have two or three lines. Like as a writer, I marvel at the fact that everybody is of equal weight. And that's imp impossible to do. Um, I mean, that there's a, uh, of course, casting is a huge part of that, but it feels like everybody's important, everybody's mm -hmm. involved. Um, you know, even even people who have two lines are, are fantastic. I think you're spot on. And it's the theme because it's a humanist anti-fascist film. It, it, it's it, that reflects the, the greater theme of the uh, of the movie, that every individual matters in this world. If a movie can be an individual story that you are so bought into, but at the same time shine a light on the wider social issues, it's mm. it's achieved uh, a, a great and rare thing, mm. and uh, and Casablanca certainly does. Two 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 little factoids. Go on. Yes, we move I love on. your factoids. I love them. <laughs> yeah. Um, one was that Bogart um, literally says, "I don't do love well." Um, he said, in, and uh, Michael Curtiz had to convince him that he was a romantic lead. He did mm -hmm. not believe he was a romantic lead. And, um, and I, I love the stuff in Paris. I think he plays it wonderfully. And yeah. it, you can see the love that's going on there. And, and uh, uh, so he does, he does a great job. I, maybe he was put off by the fact that Bergman, I think, is two inches taller than him. But, <laughs> but, um, but the other well. factoid is that Bergman and Bogart uh, didn't really hang out very much during the filming. The only time they got together was a couple weeks in where they were both like, we got to get off this film. It's not very good. They both had, they were both worried <laughs> that it was not working. Um, and so they had a lunch and were trying to figure out how to, how, how to skate. And uh, thank God they didn't. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah. Wow, I I thought you were gonna you were gonna say, and uh, I'll say, um, thank goodness the first choice wasn't available. George Raft, I like George Raft in George Raft movies. I've seen a lot of those '30s movies, which tend to be gangster movies, and I've enjoyed him in them. But thank God it wasn't him. And perhaps it is Bogart's awkwardness with expressing love that some of us relate to, because love can make you really tongue-tied. And it can make it really difficult for you to voice those feelings. And, and maybe that comes out in this performance and we actually relate to that awkwardness. Um, who knows? So my second film, um, I'd say is very different to Casablanca. Um, and it's also, I find, it has many similarities with my other favorite film, which is unsurprising, um, My Beautiful Laundrette, but also many differences. And it is Strictly Ballroom, 
which I believe was 1992, Baz Luhrmann's uh, film. And it was the first of his um, amazingly accurately titled Red Curtain Trilogy. <laughs> um, and unlike My Beautiful Laundrette, which is set in gritty Thatcher's Britain, we are in this magical world in Australia of ballroom dancing, where everything is heightened from costume, performances, dialogue, just completely aesthetics themselves. And it's the story of Scott, who once, who's a ballroom dancer brought up by championship ballroom dancers in the ballroom dancing world, but he wants to dance his own steps uh, because he wants to express himself through dance in a more accurate way. Um, and that is honestly the simple premise, which sounds so bizarre when you lay it out. <laughs> And yet it's just the most magical movie about, again, outsiders. And he meets this um, like quiet girl, Fran, who's the only person that agrees to dance his own steps with him. And they start training at nighttime. And it's a bit, it's quite farcical. It's quite, it's, it's a great comedy. But also I think what's really surprising when you, you get about half an hour in and then suddenly it starts developing this serious romance and like serious pathos in their relationship eventually as I mentioned earlier <laughs> they get to dance their own steps and there's a happy ending <laughs> uh, but along the way they have um it's quite a journey in involving um breaking out from your parents um kind of control or their expectations of what you want to be there's also there's like I say being different she's very different uh, from the other girls and you know at the end and they're kind of hide they spent the whole film hiding practicing behind it um, at night and then they have this great moment in the championships where they dance in front of an entire crowd and are celebrated for their difference um, and it's a really wonderful film full of hilarious characters it's also very compassionate even to the villains who are the ballroom king Barry Fife <laughs> yeah. uh, who uh, says you can't dance your own step Scott <laughs> And um, yeah, it's just wonderful. It's just really joyous. And I watched it, the last time I watched this film was actually this year in March when um, I actually had COVID. <laughs> and so me and my flatmates who all had it, uh, chose a film a night and that was mine. And I didn't know if it was gonna go down well because it's quite obscure. It's, it's a strange film and, and they absolutely loved it. And it just made me think of what, um, it could literally appeal to anyone. I love the movie. I'm so glad mm. Martha picked it. Um, <laughs> yes, it's it's very endearing and very honest. It doesn't sort of apologize for itself. And I just love hearing Pasadobla in a broad, <laughs> broad Australian accent. You know, yeah, Scott, you can't you can't dance at Pasadobla. Um, <laughs> and um, and then the the subculture thing, like she's related. To, I can't remember, but the they're Spanish uh, yeah, immigrants. Yeah. yeah, their Spanish heritage as well. Yeah, big part of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's fantastic, and I I I don't know. They, he gets away with such amazingly broad characters in such mm -hmm. an honest way. Like you go in, and somebody else handling that character, it would be a clown show. Um, <laughs> but for whatever reason, you know, like the mom, the you know, I just remember all the mascara and you know, yeah. crying, and everybody looked like clowns. Yeah. Um, but it's a great film and and everybody is a hundred percent committed to it. And I think that's that's why it gets away with it. 
yeah, yeah, that's why. That's why. Yeah. That's how he gets away with it because uh, they're not put up for us to laugh at because the performances no. are by people who believe. I think they believe in who they're playing, and I'm drawn in, and I just end up accepting them all, even though you look back and you think, absolutely, it's it could be seen as a freak show, but it's not. It's not. I'm also, we know these subcultures are real. I think I'm a member of one of these subcultures, <laughs> and of uh, you know, you uh, <laughs> geeky Dungeons and Dragons playing comic strip reading. You know, uh, in a way, I, I, I've got I've got at least a foot in in a subculture, and uh, hell, they're allowed to love too. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I thank you for picking out this. There's the social differences, like in uh, West Side Story. So it's no, it's 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 no surprise that um, uh, Baz Luhrmann went on to make Romeo plus Juliet, which has some some similar tropes. It also has a kind of mousy female lead. How often do we see a kind of mousy female mm. lead who doesn't then magically turn out to be someone who's been, uh, you know, some beautiful glamorous actress who's actually been sort of playing yeah. down? Sandra Bullock, Sandra, Bull Sandra Bullock, after she stops wearing the glasses. Exactly. <laughs> she doesn't turn into a swan. She no, remains that's... who she is. And, and, and also, he's, you know, his other ballroom dancing would turn a lot of heads in, in kind of the virile uh, Australian uh, world of sort of young men. It's also the only film that, that is about young love uh, mm. that we've chosen tonight. So I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased it's, it, it, it's there. And quite frankly, that dance to um, Cindy Lauper's Time, time After, after time. time is heartbreakingly romantic. And mm. I love it. There's a beautiful and moment where they dance to it in front of the Coca-Cola sign on a roof. That's where they first dance it. And it's honestly, it's the moment where I think romance, it, the film elevates to a point where you're just so emotionally connected and you're no longer just watching it as a comedy. But I was so in, like, I was so supportive of, of them. <laughs> I was like, I'm in this now. <laughs> it, otherwise, in our closing moments, I'm going to sprinkle a couple of more titles. They are, because I get to do my two, I've picked a film that was made in the same year, I think, as It's a Wonderful Life, which is Jean Cocteau's version of the Beauty and the Beast fairy tale, La Belle et La Bette. I was so moved because I didn't know the story. And not only is there the sacrifice that Belle makes for her father, so there is filial love within the, within the story. She um, allows herself to be imprisoned by the beast in order to release her father because he's accidentally plucked a rose. But clearly we start to fall in love with the beast La Bette, just as she does. And yet, without going into the intricacies of the plot, he dies. He dies when a mirror is broken. And when the beast dies in her arm, I started sobbing because that was it. I didn't realize, in fact, in the story, when um, the Gaston character, who's actually called Avignon in this version, but basically the swaggering, bullying male, in this movie, he's killed. Diana, the goddess, who's a statue in the movie, comes to life, he shoots him with an arrow. Mm. And he dies and then he becomes the new beast and the curse is lifted. And the beast who's dead in the arms of Belle comes back to life as this beautiful prince. For me, that was, was my, you know, I'd resigned myself to this being one of those tragic love story 
that Martha said she prefers avoiding as she likes to have. <laughs> so it had those two moments for me of utter, uh, I was bereft that they couldn't find each other, that the obstacles, they weren't going to overcome them. Because uh, he's a monstrous figure and she's this beautiful girl from a different world. You know, he's trapped in this palace and then they do. But I will add something to it, which is, as a teenage boy, I felt very much an outsider, very unattractive, very no one understands me. Uh, and I identified with the beast. And I think a lot of uh, awkward teenage boys do. And that is, I think it's one of the reasons it still resonates with me because you're kind of wishing at that age, can, if only someone could see inside me. As a teenager, I didn't have these words. There's something beautiful that I think could be loved. And I think that story will always resonate, uh, particularly for people who feel that there's a disguise has been put on them. And, and that's why the Disney cartoon was so fantastic. And then the live action remake, and now there's a pantomime of mm. it. And it's a story that will always be told. Endless I don't know whether you remember the original or you've seen the Disney version, but your comments on on any of those versions would be would be welcome. Oh, yeah. Um, no, I, that was obviously one of my well, as you were revealed as my father. So, you know, that that was my favorite cartoon as a child. <laughs> but I did not know that that was your um, one of your favorite romance films, shall we call it. Um, and I've actually not seen it. So I feel quite. I feel like I definitely need to watch that, especially as um, I love the story. But I completely agree. I think that it, it holds loads of the same themes, which is about uh, feeling different and feeling um, not noticed and then one person noticing you, essentially, and, um, and then transforming you, which is an endless tale and one I will keep watching because it's got a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> there is literally a key that she finds that's um, one of the plot uh, affects the plot. Dan, uh, any of the I, versions? I, I, I love the story and I, I love the, the sacrifice. I don't know why I'm equating, well, they, they must really be in love if they're willing to sacrifice something. But um, <laughs> um, I, I'm actually kind of, as you're talking, Luke, I'm thinking about uh, BFI, because uh, the British Film Institute um, on the South Bank, I don't know if it's still there, it's still there. It I still yeah. go. So when I was eating yeah. Campbell's soup and Brussels sprouts, I still <laughs> would go and see Seven Samurai, the Philadelphia story. Oh, yeah. You know, I went as as often as I could. I was uh, there. <laughs> you know, I, I went and and so I'm just advocating for for seeing. There is something about the shared experience. Mm. Not that I don't enjoy watching a DVD or or stream at home. But there is something about the collective uh, experience of something like that. <laughs> I mean, I went to the same cinema to see Young Frankenstein seven times when I was a kid <laughs> because I couldn't believe that anything could be that funny. I, but I haven't seen that version. So now I, I want to see that version like Martha. Mm. OK, my final film. All right. This is a pause. This might not make the podcast, but I've got to tell Dan this anecdote. I'm sorry if I'm keeping <laughs> you. I used to go to the National Film Theatre, as the BFI used to be called, had no money, and I would queue, I never booked, I would queue for the reserved seats, seats reserved for people who queued. I didn't book when I was a teenager and 20 plus. And they were cheap, and they were available if you got there an hour, hour and a half early and stood in the rain. And I did. And I got to see, as a result of that queuing, and I think 
we were the last two who were let in, my friend and uh, my oldest friend, Nick, and myself. I think we were the last two. The British premiere of Young Frankenstein. <laughs> and Dan, let me tell you who was in the audience, because you are now going to go, oh, my dear. Mel Brooks, Dom DeLuise, Peter Boyle. Gene Wilder wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> Peter Boyle, and I think Madeleine Kahn. But Mel took to the stage and did a Q&A. Uh, two or three of the other actors did and I thought this movie was fantastic I cannot believe these people are here because it's not a red carpet thing I cannot believe I cannot believe it because The Producers is my favourite comedy of all time and it is the first film I literally slid out of my chair watching <laughs> at, at the National Film Theatre <laughs> uh, at, at a late night 11 o'clock on my own but as the Q&A draws to a finish a woman seated six feet in front of me says, Mel, it's time to go. It's flipping Anne Bancroft, his wife, sitting in the audience. And her job was to tell him, because he can, like me, he'll talk forever, when it's time to go. I treasure that memory like no other movie memory. OK, that has nothing to do with what we're saying tonight. My final film, I'll speak briefly on it because we're running out of time, is Before Sunrise. Aww. It's... Richard Linklater, it's um, uh, Jesse and Celine, played by uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, who meet by chance on a train and have to spend a night uh, walking through uh, Vienna um, before they wait for him to connect to another train that takes him on his journey back to America. I'm gonna, I'll be quite personal with you. I've never fallen in love at first sight. I have fallen in love after talking to someone. And this movie has two characters who talk themselves into love with mm. each other through everything that is revealed, through honest, from the heart, one-on-one, -on -one, face to face talk. But the ending is so romantic. They need to part. He has to return to the USA. She's on her way, I think, to Paris, I'd be wrong. But they agree, look, if it's real what we're feeling, Let's meet again six months from now on a railway platform in Paris. If you're there and I'm there, we know it's real. And the film ends and you don't know whether they do that or not. In the sequel, Before Sunset, you find out the answer to that question. I'm not going to reveal it uh, <laughs> at the podcast, but... No spoilers. Dan, meet me on the platform <laughs> at a Paris train station if you love me. What is that a reference to? Casablanca. We know that Ilsa wasn't there when Rick turned up in Casablanca, but if you want to find out whether Jesse or Celine, either or both were there, you have to watch the sequel um, before sunset. And I'll leave it there, but I'd love to hear your comments uh, if you have any uh, on that movie. Well, you know, I, I haven't seen any of those. There's three of them, right? Yes, yeah. they're, on there. they're on now, yeah. Okay, so I know what I'm doing this week. Uh, uh, I haven't I haven't seen them. I've just heard of them. And when I was living in the UK, when I was living in London, I had a very similar experience doing the train boat train uh, mm -hmm. to Paris overnight. Um, oh. And uh, by the you time got talking. We, you got talking, we got talking on. I was asleep on the. Oh, we actually met on the ferry and we got talking. Uh, she woke me up 
to move, to make me move so she could sit next to me. And we started talking and we were talking and then we got off the boat and got on the train and we're talking and we're talking. And then we went to the end of the compartment and made out. <laughs> and, um, and by the time we got to Paris in the morning, we were completely utterly smitten, but we went opposite ways and there was no phones or anything like that. Uh, we wrote to each other for a little bit, but uh, wow. uh, yeah. Anyway, that's completely off the subject. You lived it. <laughs> uh, Did you tell yeah. Richard Dickley to that story? Because <laughs> I think he owes you some money. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he cribbed it. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen it, Martha? Yeah, I love it. Um, I do find it quite funny because I came to it um, when they'd already made the sequel. So when I and when I came to it, people, it was already iconic. Um, so I didn't see it in the cinema like some people, <laughs> uh, but they, uh, so when I was coming uh, to it, I remember being told um, you either love the first one or the second one because they're both excellent. And they, and I remember, have you heard this as well? No, but anyway, I was told um, young people um, is, uh, prefer the, uh, the first one because it's more kind of, I don't know, it's just really hopeful and they just meet and they fall in love, they've got no issues. And then the second one meets them. Is it 10 years later? I think they're along uh, yeah, the they made it nine, I think maybe yeah. Yeah, maybe nine nine mm. years later. And the characters <laughs> move um, on as they would have nine years, yeah. ten years, decade later. Um, and so it does feel like it's it's just very different. The tone is different, um, but it's also wonderful. Um, so I did, yeah. I saw I watched the first one, and I do think it's my favorite. I watched the third one, and I wasn't quite prepared. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the third one is being is about having been married for a long time. So yeah. maybe that's that's because I haven't you should, been. You, you, you can watch <laughs> I've got it. that. Hopefully, I haven't got that. Yeah, watch it in a few years' time. <laughs> I'm going to do, do that old. It. I saw it in the cinema, but that meant that I got to I got to live the yeah. same a number of years between the films that the characters did, mm. who are similar in age to me. Mm. which means uh, it has a particular resonance. Yeah. Um, our lives haven't turned out the same way, but you are sort of growing up with them. Uh, here's a bit of trivia. The movie is set on June 16th, which is known as Bloomsday, because it, it is the day in James Joyce's Ulysses that his character spends walking through Dublin. Uh, and so there's this literary reference to that wonderful book. Now, uh, James Joyce found great difficulty in having Ulysses published. It was considered pornographic. It was published by an obscure French-based uh, bookshop uh, that was also a small publishing house called Shakespeare & Co. in Paris. The opening scene of Before Sunset is set in Shakespeare & Co., mm. the real Shakespeare & Co. in Paris where one of the characters has now become a novelist and is doing a reading uh, of that book. Um, so there's some, um, some trivia. Another which, factoid. <laughs> uh, really doesn't, isn't necessary uh, to enhance your enjoyment. Uh, of, <laughs> but I had to tell someone and you're here. <laughs> uh, we are at the end of our uh, time. I have loved uh, talking about movies talking about love uh, with the two of you. Uh, thank you very much for your choices and the opportunities it's given me uh, to chat, for your insights, 
for the uh, all the kind of information around those movies that I always find absolutely fascinating that you've brought to me and we are going to uh, broadcast to anyone who's interested in movies uh, and in particular the movies that have somehow stayed with or shaped or, or done something or made them feel uh, something, uh, my guests. And today they have been Martha Julia and Dan O'Connor. Thank you for your time. My name is Luke Sorber. That was The Movies That Made Me. The producer is Andrew Payne and it is a Picard production. Mm -hmm.